Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1948 Preston Sturgis film, Unfaithfully Yours. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? Doing great. Barrett, this is our third Sturgis film, I think. We watched Sullivan's Travels probably in the first 10 episodes of this show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then last year, or maybe the year before, we watched uh, Hail the Conquering Hero. Now we're here to talk about Unfaithfully Yours. What is your history with this film? Yeah, that's what I was. That's what I was trying to remember. In fact, uh, I asked my wife if she remembered when we uh, when when we first ran across it, uh, and because it's one of our favorite films for both of us, and neither of us can exactly remember. I I got into my uh, my Sturgis Jag. I don't know, maybe 10, 15 years ago or so, and somewhere along the line, I came upon Unfaithfully Yours. So I I afraid I don't remember, but somehow I found it. Yeah, I. This is not a movie of his that I had heard of. I've only seen um, I've only seen the ones we watch for this show, and um, this might be my favorite of them. Actually, I you know I, I uh, Sullivan's Travels has a a, a place in my heart, um, but but this movie in particular, I was just really interested in what he's doing. Um, now, what's interesting is this is kind of regarded as his last great film, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. At the very tail tail end, of, I mean, he has this like miracle run where he makes like six or seven movies in four years, yeah. and then this is a couple years after that. He's um, he's on the decline commercially at this point, but I, I think artistically, this movie that uh, that's not the case. Yeah, he's had a couple of flops. He uh, he actually made three films in forty four for Paramount. Um, he made both our Miracle Morgan's Creek and Hail the Conquering Hero. And then he made his first kind of um, drama, a film I've still never seen, even though I, I have it on DVD called The Great Moment, which is about the discovery of ether as an anesthesia. Um, and that that film didn't didn't do well. And he got tired of Paramount um, uh, kind of messing with messing with his uh, uh, with his uh, schedule and his his art. So he left Paramount and he formed a very ill-fated uh, partnership with Howard Hughes. And they started something called California Pictures. And he directed a picture called Vendetta, which was um, not something he'd written. And it was a pretty big flop. Uh, and then he made something called The Sin of Harold Diddleback, which was supposed to be Harold Lloyd's uh, return to the big screen. He really loved Lloyd. And uh, it was a continuation of Lloyd's film, The Freshman. And um, Hughes hated it. Took it up, uh, fired, uh, fired um, uh, Sturgis, uh, re-edited the film, released it three years later, something called Mad Wednesday, and that flopped as well. So then he, Daryl Zanuck signed him with Fox. And uh, so this film in 48 was his first film with Fox, uh, as you're right. It's really his last great film in terms of how it's looked at now. At the time, it was a, a big flop. Um, so he now had had three flops in a row. Uh, and then he made a Betty Grable vehicle called the uh, Beautiful Bond from Bashful, Bashful Bend, uh, which was also a flop. And at that point, he was kind of done. Uh, he went to Europe, made one not very well-received film in Europe, uh, tried some stage productions in New York because he had started out actually on the stage in the 30s. Uh, it's just it's like his Midas touch went to became the opposite. Um yeah, and he now, died now have you, have in you 1959 seen... of a heart attack while he's working on an autobiography called The Events Leading Up to My Death, which is a wonderful huh. title. <laughs> um, 
have you seen his films, any of his films post this? I've seen Beautiful Blonde from Bashful Bend. Is I, it is it bad? Um, it's not great. I, I, okay. I, mean, I wouldn't call it bad. It's the only film he ever directed in color. Okay. Um, but it's it's definitely not up to his standards. Uh, that's for sure. Because yeah. that's what I was curious about. Because sometimes people lose the Midas touch commercially. But if you look at what they're doing, it's like, well, this is still pretty Because like, for example, this film, as you said, was um, was not successful commercially, not really successful I kind of mixed critically, I think, at the time. Yeah. Um, and now now it's regarded as uh, it, it's pretty highly regarded now. Um, but it's it's interesting to that that if even like the the quality sort of disappears or, or like at least the the peak of the quality disappears. Well, what's interesting, Sam, is and I didn't know this until recently, he actually wrote the first draft of the script in the 30s. So the film actually originates from when he was really at his peak because he made his reputation as a screenwriter. In fact, um, he was the first screenwriter to make the transition from uh, writing to uh, directing. And he paved the way for Billy Wilder and John Huston, who followed him. And then at one point, he was the only American who was both a writer, producer and director, along with Rene Claire in France and... Uh, one other uh, person whose name's not coming to me. So he, so I, in a sense, you could argue that this is more of a product of the 30s than it is a product of the 40s. Um, so, which is interesting because when people try to figure out the genre for this film, and that's one reason why they think it flopped at the box office, because um, people didn't really know what they were going into and they didn't quite know how to market it. Um, some people have suggested, well, it's kind of a parody of film noir because 1948 is sort of the high watermark of film noir. Uh, but if you wrote this in the 30s, there was no film noir. So it's uh, and I and I think if you look at Sturgis's films, a lot of his films, you mentioned Sullivan's Travels earlier, a lot of his films mix genres. So that's not really unusual for Sturgis to change tones and, and kind of change genres. But for whatever reason, the audience wasn't. Um, wasn't ready for that in this particular case. Not only was film noir at its height, but uh, a lot of there were a lot of kind of serious problem pictures coming out, especially uh, films about um, anti-Semitism, like Gentleman's Agreement and Crossfire that came out in the same year. And I think audiences just didn't know what they were getting into. And it had been a number of years since Sturgis have had a hit. And this is a very different film from something like Miracle of Morgan's Creek or Hail the Conquering Hero. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a difficult film to to market. I mean, even if I was trying to explain this to somebody now, it's like because of the tone shifts, it, you feel like you're watching one thing, then you feel like you're watching another. Um, and and it's sort of it's it's it's, it's it, I really like that about this movie. It's really surprising how he moves from one thing to another. Um, the uh, the pan on this movie at the time was that nothing happens in it which is a very silly thing to say because i would argue like as i was sort of writing notes for this i realized like there's so many moments where i thought oh this is what the movie is now and this is how it's going to end and then i realized no in fact that is not what the movie is and it's gonna and it it keeps becoming something new uh it feels like like this movie is every time you turn a corner it's a different it's a different movie and he can't help himself but but switch things up, you know, it has one feel and then another. And again, I think done in this case, done really masterfully. Um, the thing that I thought about while watching this movie that made it feel very modern to me. Now, this is uh, what I'm about to say is an overstatement, and I'm aware of that. But like 
this made me think of, of types of movies that are very popular now, which is this has a little like multiverse feel to it. It's like, okay, mm. we have this story and now we're going to, we're going to push out all these different threads of how this story could go. And as you're watching, like the, especially the, the first of the, um, <laughs> versions of the story you don't know that that's not just the story you're watching and then when it pulls back and then it goes back in again you're like oh we're seeing all these different iterations of possibility um so again it's an overstatement to call this an early multiverse movie but it kind of has that feel to me i feel the same way i feel watching something like that yes and and evidently even though you know sturgis tries to signal to the audience what's going on you know the, the, the camera drills in on sir alfred's left eye which is something that Hitchcock picks up on in Vertigo, actually. Um, I, evidently, there was still some confusion about, well, what's happening now? And, and people not fully understanding this was a, this was a, a, a fantasy. But one of, the, one of the ways in which this shifts in tone, I think both work and are signaled, is by Sturgis's brilliant choice of three very different pieces of music all of which have um, all of which have to do with various takes, both in the music itself, if you look at what the music originally is about, and in the way the scenarios or the prospects, as some critics call it, are played out, uh, you get very different perspectives on on what he's trying to say about love and Sir Alfred's feelings about about Daphne. So I think that's one of the ways, or one of the reasons in which the tonal shifts really work, because he gives you the very Hollywood music to go with those shifts and very deliberately chosen music. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is a definitely a movie that um, is playing with the idea of music. And this goes back, you said he wrote this in, you know, originally in the thirties, this goes back to uh, an actual experience that he has. And then he makes a movie about that experience. So um, supposedly in the thirties, he was writing, he was writing a scene for another film and he had it all laid out in his head of how it was going to go. And he was sitting writing it and it didn't it didn't play out the way he thought. And then he realized in another room there was a radio on playing a classical music concert. And he realized that 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 music had sort of infected his brain and shaped it in a particular direction, a particular tone. And he started writing that way. And then he took that as an idea for a movie. It's what I love about this movie is like it is. um it's not a it's it, it's a it's a I mean it is it is a very high concept movie right it, it is about this particular idea and playing with that idea um and I think that that is that is so brilliantly done and you walk out feeling like huh that was I mean the idea it, it doesn't like scream it at you but you walk out understanding yes each piece of music had this tone and it shaped the way he was thinking about it. And, and you also realize like, as somebody is creating art, you think about, well, what is going through their head? I love the scene when <laughs> yeah. uh, after, after the first song, when Hugo comes in yes, yes. and he's like, you know, what kind of Armageddon were you thinking? Like he was so excited about it. And he's like, you have no idea what I was thinking. <laughs> um, and, and like that, that's just this, this, this great, um, this great moment. And I, so I love that, that he took that idea and what was interesting is, so I watched this again yesterday morning uh, before I started work and I went in, I, I had a, a meeting right afterwards and I went into that meeting and I was there early and I was starting to set up and I was real, realizing in my head, I was jauntily replaying music from the movie and it was shaping the way I moved. And I thought, Sturgis, you got me like you have infected me now. You've given me a soundtrack to my day. And it was so interesting. 
Well, I'm glad you brought up the, that origin story, uh, Sam, because um, there's a number of ways in which the film is probably the most autobiographical that Sturgis made. So in addition to the way that he himself was shaped by music, um, you have the fact that um, the backstory for Sir Alfred, which the censors wouldn't allow, is uh, he's been married five times. Um, and Sturgis, I think at this point he was... He had come off of his third marriage and was involved with somebody he didn't end up marrying. And then he ended up marrying one more time. So he was married four times. And there's many ways in which um, Sir Alfred's passion is is kind of reflect, Sturgis reflecting on, on himself. And I, I, I have to kind of spoil the ending at this point to say that the line at the end, you know, the uh, thousand poets dreamed a thousand uh, a thousand poets dreamed a thousand dreams and you were born. That's something Sturgis said to his second wife in 1931. So, um, th th so this is maybe the closest we, we got, we've gotten to, um, Sturgis kind of depicting himself on, on film. Uh, the critic Manny Farber said for Sturgis was viciously alive, um, which seems to be a good description of, um, Rex Harrison, uh, yeah. Yeah, there's a great uh, there's a great uh, extra on the Criterion channel um, interviewing one of his wives. I'm not sure which one it is. I don't know. Uh, if he... Sandy, his last wife. Okay, and she so she talks about this line, and she said, "Yes, he used this on his first wife, and probably on his third and fourth, and me." And she said, "It's a good line, it's you know." A great so, line. <laughs> so when she when she saw it in the movie, she's like, "Oh yes, like I have heard this line before." <laughs> It's, uh, yeah, yeah. As long as we're talking about appreciation for Sturgis, I just have to mention a random fact that a couple of years ago, um, Quentin Tarantino did a list for of eleven favorite films. I don't know what the what the what the the uh, the criterion was. It was just favorite films, and uh, unfaithfully yours appears uh, on that on that list at, at number nine. And th that actually fits if I think about certain things that the Tarantino does playing with story with sequence with time a little bit it's like yeah, yeah this 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 fits into that this is exploring what a movie can do um and 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 tarantino likes to do that so the, here's the other thing i find interesting so it, this this movie has this idea of how music can kind of inf infect is maybe not the right word but that's what, what i'll use kind of infect your mind and shape your moods right mm -hmm. but what's interesting is this this movie is also about how an idea can infect your mind and get yes. planted because what's interesting is at the start of the movie sir alfred is so decidedly not a jealous husband mm -hmm. we see the big box of flowers come and uh and he even says like oh this is probably from a former lover who still is infatuated with her and every year he sends her and he's not upset about it he's like isn't that a delightful story <laughs> like this is not a jealous husband no. but when he talks with august and August, you know, talks about there's the, the great scene where he, he keeps repeating, you told me to look after your wife or keep an eye on your wife. And um, and and at first he he totally rejects that. But then people keep presenting this to him. So by the third time, that idea has planted its seed in his head and it then shapes everything. So in the same way, music can do that. Ideas can sort of infect the mind because Alfred becomes a different person almost because this one idea, this one like seed of an idea has like burrowed into his head and then this shapes him. And it's not until the very end that uh, that Daphne sort of plucks that seed out and he becomes the person he was at the beginning. 
Well, you know, um, Sam, often on this podcast, I, I, I uh, revert to uh, Shakespearean parallels. And uh, this is Sturgis's Othello, because um, that's exactly what's exactly the way you described it, that when you when you look at the Shakespeare play, it's the same thing. This is not a jealous man. And then Iago keeps planting the seed, planting the seed. And August it almost serves the Iago-like function in this in this uh, in that scene. So if if I'm repairing this with another movie, I'd probably pick Orson Welles' Othello to to go along with it. Oh, that would be really interesting. That's that's <laughs> interesting to think about. Um, so what what I loved about this movie is that it has a very clear, and I'm not sure if I think it's a complicated structure or a very simple structure, yeah. but it's definitely a very loaded structure. Mm-hmm. You know, like like there are. <laughs> There are three distinct parts to this movie, and then within those parts, there are parts within the parts. Like, but 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 you can sort of see the construction of it, which I find really interesting. Like, like it is very clear. Uh, I'm not somebody who picks up on like, oh, this is a three act structure, or this is. But like mm-hmm. this movie, it's like I can feel Sturgis's brain a little bit, saying like, this mm-hmm. is this. Now this is a distinctly different thing. And within that, we're going to have these pieces. And then this is another, and part of that is the tone shift mm-hmm. that, that he, that there are basically maybe five different movies within this movie, like yeah, in, yes. in terms of tonally. Right. So, mm-hmm. so part one is the pre-concert movie, which is in some ways what I think of when I think of Preston Sturgis, cause it's the mm-hmm. most like talky, funny. It reminds me of the, the opening scene of, um, of Sullivan's travels when you have him when you have oh. Sullivan talking to the the movie producers and they're just they're talking over each other everybody's so unbelievably smart and funny and there are sort of jokes just pounding through it right so you get this sort of um this very verbal com- comedy it also in that first that first section every character in the movie is introduced by then mm-hmm. before we get to the concert we have met everybody and he's gone out of his way to seed characters right like like I love uh, Sweeney and the Taylor, like 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 that we get that, and then that they show up in the like they show up at the concert, and they become a running bit um, throughout that concert. Uh, and this is also again where that that seed of infidelity is planted. Um, but what's great about that first chunk is, although it is this very verbal Preston Sturgisy rapid fire comedy, he still punctuates that with the. Uh, orchestra rehearsal mm. which is not i mean there's only one joke in there and it's maybe a joke and yes. that is the symbols right when he goes and gets the bigger symbols but like but even that's like not that much of a joke it is but so it is just sort of like sturgis is a lover of this type of music and in fact i'm gonna put this in here and we're gonna take this seriously for a little bit yeah i and, absolutely, yeah. absolutely Sammy. i i yeah i i love that because that scene unfolds and, and you realize oh he just wants us to listen to the music without Sir Alfred's interpretation. He, did, you know, I mean, and, and in a sense, what he wants us to do is he wants us to be the music lover that Sir Alfred is before he turns into the man who is inspired by the music to, for, to murder his thoughts. And so I really, I really love it. And it's, it's also like, um, you know, any, any, any good comedy works with contrasts. So it's almost like, okay, let's just, let, let's let the audience relax a little bit before, and we'll have a little bit of humor in there with the symbols. But by and large, let's just remember this is this is real music, which is really meant to be enjoyed, not meant to be twisted or used in the way that we're going to see Sir Alfred use it. 
So, so the, the, I mean, in, so in this first part, there are some different cases to be made about what music's about. Like this is a, this is sort of looking at it like a serious art form. Like this might as well be a scene from Tar, right? Like yeah, yeah, we're right. just, we're just. So I thought a lot about Tar watching this movie. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. Um, but then you also get. I love the scene earlier when, um, uh, Sir Alfred is like. We shouldn't take music too seriously. This right, should right. be enjoyed with a sandwich in one hand and a bucket of beers in the right. other. So, so, it, and and I think he like genuinely, genuinely kind of means that, you know, like like it is both this and that. Like, let's take this very seriously, but also let's not take everything like that so seriously. Well, he also tells Sweeney right that one of the reasons he's disappointed that Sweeney uh, is a is a detective is because he thinks music has a moral and antiseptic effect. So right. even though he says the one time is for pleasure, he also says, on the other hand, that it's it is it's a classic argument for uh, for art as in some way ennobling. And of course, yeah. he then proves the very opposite of his thesis with his various fantasies. So music is kind of playing a lot of different roles here in in, in his view. Yeah, I also love how that 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 line is preceded by "I am bitterly disappointed to find that you are a music lover." <laughs> That is, um, uh, that, I'll, I'll say right now, Sam, that is one of my two favorite scenes in, in, in the film. And my two favorite scenes are very different scenes. That one I love because of what's going on verbally. And the other scene I love because of what's, of what's going on, uh, on, on f- physically. Yeah. So, so uh, to, to the point of like tonal shifts in this, so it, it, th- this first section is punctuated by that music rehearsal. But he also throws in an absolutely ridiculous slapstick scene where the fire breaks out. Oh yeah, and it's yeah. like it's like all of a sudden we're watching a different movie and everybody is silly. You have those people with those little misters trying to put yeah. out this big fire, <laughs> and then you have people who can't control the fire hoses. And it's like that just happened. It's like this feels like Sturgis just saying like I can't help myself. I'm going to put this in too, um, well, which that- I love in this movie. And that's also Sturgis uh, being uh, Sturgis was a lover of silent film. Uh, and that's also Sturgia. I mean, it's almost like you're, you're watching the Keystone Cops or, or or even the Three Stooges. And he just loves that kind of stuff. And I, again, I mean, Sturgis, to, to me, my, my love of Sturgis is similar to my love of Monty Python because they both, both of those, um, both explore humor from the lowest brow to the highest. And you get, and you, and you get that whole range in a, in a Sturgis film. So you can luxuriate in the, and this is one of his, clever scripts so you can luxuriate in the in the language but then at the same time you can just laugh out loud at the pratfalls and uh, the slapstick um so i, I want to talk about highlights from this first part i love the scene where uh august and alfred talk because this is a really important moment i think in setting up this film because if you think about it now i don't know what america was like in 1948 exactly but i go into this movie and i'm assuming that the British classical music conductor is like the guy who's going to be sort of stuffy and like kind of uptight. And that scene is all about saying, actually, there's another guy who's more stuffy and uptight. And act- so, so like, like, like uh, August serves to make Alfred seem like a pretty cool guy, <laughs> you know, and, and, and you see Alfred just getting to like, just constantly tear into him and make some good points. Like, like any, any man who hires a detective is going to find what he's looking for or something like that. Like, like there's all these, these, these little things, or they're, or talking about the nature of like, what does it mean to, to be two men who married sisters? Like, like technically we're related. And I love when he talks about uh, August's mother and he says, I suppose we're, we're related to then, you know? (laughs) 
I also love it's kind of a throwaway line, but I had to write this one down. August is talking about his mother, and he says, if it's not one part that's ailing, it's another. And she seems to have so many parts for a woman of her age, that is. Yes. I would say this is the stuff that makes that feels the most like Cohen's brothers to me. Yeah. Like I know they're big Preston Surges fans, so this feels like a like a Cohen's comedy. Uh and it's the kind of writing they're trying to uh trying to reach. And then is there anything else you want to say about the uh the the Sweeney scene? Um, oh yeah, yeah. Um, again, what, what I, I I love the fact when um, Sweeney is responding to Sir Alfred being angry at him, right? And he says, "I don't know why you're sore of, sore at me." He says, "I suppose it was me that went down to thirty four oh six in the middle of the night wearing only a negligee and stand for thirty eight minutes. Stayed for thirty eight minutes. I suppose that's the part that bothered you." It usually is, and I just think Edgar Kennedy in this scene is is amazing. I just I I just I just love his his, his he's got such an expressive face, and his uh, the other thing is that's great about the scene is um, the timing is really exquisite. And the other thing I have to say, Sam, is that one of the verbal one of the sources of verbal humor in this film is a series of malapropisms. And, and one of the really interesting malapropism in the scene is that um, Sir Alfred insists on calling him a foot pad rather than a flat foot. And of course, a foot pad is a highwayman, is a robber. And then, and then when Sweeney tries to correct him, he says, no, 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 I mean foot pad. And then you really don't know at this point, does Sir Alfred, because I think flat foot is, a, is an Americanism. Does, does Sir Alfred really not know there's between flat foot or foot pad? Is he really trying to insult him? Um, and there's there's other moments of um, verbal confusion by Sir Alfred. In that conversation with August, he talks about how he doesn't want a detective sleuthing after his wife rather than sleuthing. Um, and then at the end, he he says that um, Daphne has come from Porthole, Michigan, rather than Porthole. Um, and then somebody, I forget who this is, I, I just wrote it down. Somebody says debut rather than debut. Um, that's Sweeney. The, uh, yeah, he says he. I, I saw your debut. Yes, was that Sweeney? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then um, the fire captain says, "Are you, are you the party that started this conflagration?" Uh, and of course, the best malapropism is Daphne claiming that her father played Russian roulette rather than Russian bank all the time. So okay, just... <laughs> that that's my favorite joke in the movie because it's extended it, it's extended when he says have you ever heard of russian roulette and she said yes i played it all the time with my father and he says i doubt you played it all the time with your father and then he says, I, I wish he'd played it constantly right yes <laughs> so anyway that 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 to me those those are the, the grace notes in this film that i that i really love because it's all about verbal infelicity, and it's just as funny as when they're ver when they're verbally felicitous. Well, and there, there's another thing that 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 happens in this movie a couple of times, and I can think of one that comes from the Sweeney conversation. Um, and it, it's something the Coens do too. They do this in Lebowski a lot, where somebody will will say a phrase, and mm -hmm. then later on, somebody else will say that same phrase that they heard. So Sweeney says, "You know, youth is for the youth for youth." Yes. Yeah, and then at the and then in the the scene where he is forgiving her and writing the check, he says, "Youth for youth and beauty for beauty." So and and I, I there's probably more moments in that where that happens, which I I find so interesting because that is actually how language works a little bit. Yeah. Like you hear a phrase used and you somehow connect to that, and then you start to use that phrase, but it's in sometimes a different context or or the same context but with different people. So um, 
I, I, that stuff fascinates me when, when you see that in a script and the Coens do it and definitely Sturgis does it. One, one other, one other little verbal thing that they do, and this gets back to the fire chief. When the fire chief is knocking on the door, Sir Alfred says, I'll be with just a minute, Colonel. And then he, a few minutes later, he says, just a minute, General. Uh, and then you have, well, when, when Daphne calls Barbara and she says, well, I'll check, I'll check on Casanova. And then she opens the door and she says, well, sitting bull is in there counting, counting his money. And then Daphne at one point says that Sir Alfred is like a bear with a sore paw. Then she says he's like a crocodile with a toothache. So you, you get all these wonderful little, again, they're like these little throwaway lines, but they're these, it, it's just, you, you live in this world of this verbal wittiness that just makes it uh, kind of come alive. Okay, there's one more thing with the fire captain where he calls him uh, or colonel and then general. Um, when he's talking to Daphne, he says, uh, there, there's a nobleman in a white hat who wants to speak with me. <laughs> so, so that first part is loaded with stuff like that. And I think my second viewing, like more of those things jump out to me. Then we move to the 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 second chunk of this movie, which is the concert itself, mm-hmm. um, which begins with reintroducing all of the characters everybody we've met comes back everybody is is at this concert including sweeney and the taylor because there's that great moment where he where he walks out and then he walks back in and puts two tickets down mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. uh and we get the the first song and we get this push in to um to sir alfred's eye as he's conducting and we get this uh we then we we go that goes to black and then we see them um, we see Daphne and um and Al, and Alfred walking into their apartment and again the first time you're seeing this you have no reason to believe this isn't what happens after the concert you don't know what the movie is I mean so because because pulling in on somebody's eye might be going into their head it might just also be a creative move to say here's how we're going to fade to black yeah. um and we get this. Uh, perfect murder plot. It feels like a. It feels like the first twenty minutes of a Columbo movie. You're watching, and and there's very few jokes in here. Here, like, I mean, there's there. People are witty because they're witty, but it it feels like there there's there's very little humor in this, and and there's also no explanation. You're just watching stuff and slowly realizing how all of this is going to get put together. And it's yeah, it, it's it's very dark. Um, and and then you get the echo. It's interesting. You get Sir Alfred's laughter, which kind of echoes the laughter in the rehearsal scene with with, with the symbol. And you know, later on, reflecting on the scene, on the scene when he tells her about it, you know, when he tells her about the fantasy, he says, "I slashed your throat. Your head almost came off." I mean, it's it's very brutal. And and I think it's the kind of thing that probably early on would have been very off putting for the audience that he chooses to start with the most violent of the scenarios. So the music here is um, is Rossini's um, overture to Semiramida, uh, uh, and that's that's an opera about this kind of femme fatale. This uh, this she's the queen of Assyria, and she connives with her lover to poison her husband, and she then ends up at the end being accidentally killed by her son. So it's a uh, so th- this is exactly this the role in which he has cast her. He's cast her as the femme fatale who has betrayed him and he's going to get his revenge on her. So Sturgis is very careful with um, each piece of music to match not only a particular mood with the music, but also to correlate with the actual story that the music is telling. Is they're, they're all overtures to operas and so they all have various plots that go with them. And I will say when he kills her, 
It is genuinely shocking. Again, if you don't know where this movie's going, it's been so funny for 30 minutes. And then you get to this and you don't know that this isn't the story. And I, I just remember thinking like, I cannot believe that's where this movie went. You know, and then you get it, it, it starts to move rapidly because you get to the once it cuts to the trial and you realize, oh, okay, this clearly this is not what the movie is. But that's that's like I, I was it kind of took my breath away the first time because I just I just did not believe this is where this was headed. Yeah, and I think I think that because as I said earlier, this is done in the context of films noir. Um, I don't think the audience is inclined to find this in any way amusing. And I'm not saying that, that Sturgis thinks this is amusing to watch him murder his wife, but I think that maybe what Sturgis didn't plan on or didn't anticipate is that it would be such a mood killer for the audience that they would have a really hard time kind of bouncing back from, from, from that. I mean, and it's amazing the censors let him do as much as they did. You know, I mean, she, they show her hand, you know, as she obviously is, is uh, is succumbing to to the knife but it's uh it's yeah it's it's a pretty powerful shock to the audience well and uh, do you want to talk about rex harrison here and his like what's happening in his life as this movie comes out yeah you know so right so rex harrison was having an affair with a young actress named carol landis and um he was married at the time and evidently told her he was not going to divorce his wife or her so she was found dead in her apartment in mysterious circumstances. It was pronounced a suicide, but there was always kind of a shadow that hung over Harrison. Um, she left evidently two suicide notes, one for him, which he destroyed. Uh, and so th- th- there was a th- there's an irony here that before the, the film opened, there was a fear that American audiences didn't know Rex Harrison well enough. And then by the time the film opened, they knew him all too well. And so it came with some some pretty bad press for him right and and i think that affected the marketing of the movie too in terms of like like how do you do that so what what's great about this is so again this is very non-jokey this section but he plants seeds for later jokes so we get introduced to this recording device that he uses very deftly we also get introduced to the idea that if you take the phone off the hook there's an operator there right away um and that's going to become a very funny joke later but right now it's just it's part of the murder plot which is which which is brilliant all right so then we get to the second song um we pull in on the eye and this is sort of like an overly dramatic, almost like melodrama where he is, you know, sort of telling Daphne basically that he understands and he writes her this $100,000 check. And this is where the youth for youth and beauty for beauty. Um, and what I what I like about this is that um, after this scene, um, so so Hugo visits after the first song uh, backstage. Daphne and Tony visit after the second song, and his comment they they're, they love the song. And his comment is personally, I thought the uh, I thought every emotion was tremendously exaggerated. It's almost like he's critiquing the scene he yes. played in his head. It's like oh, that seems a little overdone. Yeah, and this is uh, this is Wagner. This is a Townhäuser. Uh, and the story here is uh, the poet Townhäuser has spent a year in the court of Venus enjoying carnal pleasures. Uh, and then he emerges and decides to renounce those carnal pleasures for higher love. So uh, so it's a scene of renunciation. And so that fits in very beautifully with Sir Alfred saying, you know, it's all my fault. I'm going to take it all on myself. He's going to renounce his love for her and be magnanimous. And so, again, the both the, the, the music itself and the story 
beautifully match the fantasy. And then we get to song three, um, which is where he is sort of actively confronting Daphne and Tony. And here's where we get the, uh, the, the, the Russian roulette. So here, here is, here's him admitting or not admitting, but like exposing what has happened. Um, and you know, he even says, you know, I have, I have every card to play. I'm the one who has every card to play and the unwritten laws are on my side. So like, this is him taking control of this moment. Um, and he, uh, he, you know, he challenges Tony basically to a kind of duel, right. Of Russian roulette and Tony won't do it. So he does it. And then he, you know, ends up shooting himself. Uh, you know, he loses the game of Russian roulette and it's sort of this, this dramatic, um, uh, kind of sacrificial death sort of thing um and then this is so this and that's and so that's the third sort of version of how this story plays out what i what i love and you alluded to this earlier sam what i love is that in this fantasy he mentions the other fantasies yes so it's, so it's like you're, you're you've had a dream and then you're talking about your dream within it within another dream this is this is probably the most important piece of music because it's it's um it's uh tchaikovsky uh, and it's um, uh, uh, Francesca. It's the story. It, it's music about Francesca de, de, de Rimini. Uh, it's based on the fifth can- canto five of uh, of Inferno, and this is the second level of hell, and it's reserved for the lustful. Mm. So, so this is the piece they're playing in the opening credits, actually. So, so, and of course, what happens in the circle of the lustful? Is they are, and this is why this is so heavily with uh, strings. Is they are blown about by the winds of passion, and that's what the strings are intended to suggest. And so, just as when he's talking to um, to Daphne and uh, and uh, and Tony, the notion that she they, she she couldn't help herself, uh, they couldn't help themselves. They were they were just taken over by by love. That's exactly the argument that Francesca makes in Dante's text. Um, I basically am a victim of circumstances. This love is too powerful for me to resist. And so that's exactly what's playing out in, in this scene as well. So then after this song, we see Alfred leave and we go, so we go to the third part of the movie, which I was utterly unprepared for (laughs) Um, because this becomes functionally a silent movie for about 20 minutes. I think it gets a long stretch of, hilarious slapstick of him trying to like now he's trying to execute these one of the one of these plans right so it's he's going to execute the the um the frame murder plan um but we see everything that could possibly go wrong go wrong because um in the in the visions that he has or the dreams that he has he's the perfect version of himself right he see he's seeing it through his perfect point of view his perfect plans but then in reality there's things like he can't find the recorder or, and he walks into rooms and he stumbles over things. One of the, the, the little details that I love about this is he has a cold. Yes. Which is, which is perfect because whenever you think about an idealized version of yourself, you yep. never think about things like that. You never imagine like, Oh, I have a, you know, if I'm not feeling well, how does that affect mm-hmm. what I'm doing and things like this? Um, so we see him destroy this room. I mean, there's a degree to which, and here's a weird statement. Um, uh, a weird connection is it makes me think of Rashomon a little bit where it's like the first in part two of the movie, when he's having these visions, he's imagining him as the best version of himself and every way this plays out. And then now we're seeing, here's the reality of this guy. He's a mess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and 
you know, the, the, the seed of doubt in his head has made him a mess, both internally and externally and made his home a mess. You know, he talks about an Englishman's home is his castle. And she says, well, you did a good job of destroying your castle. <laughs> and of course, you know, the, the irony that the first thing he finds that he thinks is the recording device is of course a roulette wheel. Mm-hmm. So we get that reference to, to roulette. So yeah, this is my other favorite scene in the, in the film, uh, Sam. And as I said, you know, I, I have the scene with Sweeney, which is my favorite verbally. This is my favorite because of the physical comedy. I I really am quite astonished by Harrison's facility as a physical comedian. Um, I mean, the number of things that he that go wrong that he executes in terms of falling through the chair and stumbling and continually taking the phone off the hook. So as you said, as you mentioned earlier, number please, number please, and you've got the and you've got that going on. But also, to me, this is first of all, I think this is a film that doesn't that hardly ages badly at all. Even though it's made in 1948, there really isn't much you need to adjust yourself to to, to understand. But I think especially this effort to follow these directions and these statements like, so simple it operates itself, and even a child, right? And how many of us have open directions to put things together. I can still remember it wasn't a mechanic, it wasn't a, an electronic device, but I still remember trying to put together my son's crib, the first uh, for our first child, and had these diagrams and this crib, and and it didn't seem like any of these things actually went together. So this this to me is one of the funniest 10 or 20 minutes in all of Hollywood film. And it just it makes me laugh every time, even though I know exactly what's gonna happen. Well, and I think part of it, too, is it is the tone shift. The only thing in the movie that prepares you for this is that little scene with the fire where it's like, yeah, oh, yeah. this movie could become this. And then he's like, what if what if it was only that? And because he's alone, it's basically silent. Now, another thing that, that he does in this movie is he plays a lot with not only music, but sound. There's yeah. a lot of exaggerated sounds. Sandwich, um, the gloves. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, or, or earlier on, and when they're in the restaurant and August is unzipping his wallet, oh, it's yeah. the loudest zip. So it's and there's a point where when when he goes up to the sandwich and he pokes the sandwich and he <laughs> there's this like silly sound that it makes. And so he's he's again he's planting seeds for saying I can do this. Now I'm going to do this on a on like a large scale. Um, I thought of Chaplin. I thought of Tati a little. Like there's a little bit of playtime in this too, where. Um, uh, it just keeps heightening. Like everything keeps heightening and heightening and there's not an explanation. Like he doesn't need to talk frustratedly about how he can't get these things to operate. I'm going to show you and I'm going to do the cutaway to, you know, this, the, the diagram on page six, which is the the most ridiculous engineering schema. Like that's just such a funny, funny, funny scene. And then to have Daphne walk into this and Daphne's walking in from a different movie. Right. Yeah. She's walking in right. from the movie we've been watching and she doesn't know that the movie has changed. And that and that's such a real that's actually such a real as, as absurd as it is. It's such a real moment. You'll have these moments where you're regardless of what it is, you're caught up in something. It might be you're overly emotional about something or things are falling apart or you're overly excited or whatever. And somebody will walk into the room, not aware of the drama playing out in your life. And it and it is this like confrontation of realities and that's exactly what happens when she walks in because we've been with him so Mm. we've we've seen this build she hasn't i mean and i feel like that is so effective 
No, you're right, absolutely right. It's like, you know, we, uh, we've been engrossed in this and she walks in and all of a sudden you realize this is so far from anything that's been going on in his head that there's, that there's, there's no way she's going to have any idea what was going on in his head, which is what, kind of what plays out in the last 10, 15 minutes of the film. Uh, as a quick aside, though, Sam, I'm glad you mentioned Chaplin because uh, the year before, 1947, Chaplin released Monsieur Verdot, which is a very black comedy about a bluebeard, about a wife murderer. And so it's, it's interesting you say that because it's not just the Chaplin slap, slapstick that's going on in this film. It's also the Chaplin dark comedy that's going on in this film as well. And then I, th- I feel like this movie ends with a really great uh, statement about love. Um, because what you think Daphne needs is an explanation. <laughs> Right. I mean, walking in on this, like, like, it's like, okay, well now he's going to try to explain it all. And in reality, without him even asking, really, she explains and, and, and plucks the seed out of his head and then, and then doesn't ask for anything more. Yes. doesn't ask for an explanation. And it's just like, it's like, it's kind of great. Like, cause, cause that's the other thing you feel if you're in pick out the murderous rage part of it, if you're in the, um, the uh the state of of alfred uh and somebody comes in like sometimes you you just want to be like can we just pretend like this didn't happen because <laughs> like there's it's too much to explain and nothing got da- i mean things got damaged but but everybody's okay can we just like can we actually just put this behind us and that's it, sort of like it's almost like a like a moment of grace for her or, mm. or for him i should say from her where she's just like no like like we don't we don't need to talk about this because because her experience is so different from from his right because all she's known is he's come back they've had this reunion for some reason he's been a real crab and now he's decided not to be a crab and to be himself again that's that's all that she knows it makes me think okay this is this is a stretch as well but it makes me think a little bit about what happens in the big sick when oh sure you know when she goes into the coma and he and you know they've just broken up they've been really angry at each other she goes into the coma and then he goes through this whole emotional journey that changes their relationship and she wakes up and they are miles apart emotionally and there's a sense in which this is happening a little bit in this film right that Daphne is on one emotional wavelength and he's on a on a on a very different one and the thing that somehow Sturgis pulls off you know, getting them together, but not without, and I'm sure you were about to bring this up, not without having Sir Alfred go through all of the other unsuccessful scenarios, right? So we've got the razor, he can't find it, of course, and then he cuts himself, he tries to forgive her, and first, and then there's, not, there's no ink, and then there's too much ink, and then he can't find the bullets for the gun. So it's like, I mean, to me, Sturgis, he has constructed this film uh, with such amazing intricacy and symmetry, I, I just don't know how he pulled that off. Yeah, yeah, and 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 with the big sw- the big tone swings, and they all they all work beautifully in in the way that if you think about a piece of orchestral music, right, you have all these pieces and all these sounds that that sound so different, but when you lay them in together in the right places in the right ways it it all works like like this this is a kind of symphony uh you know symphony of 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 film tone 
um, which which fits with everything else that's that's sort of underlying this. And I love that was one of Zanuck's things is like he said you 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 can't have the word symphony in the title. Yeah, no, right. no one will come see that. <laughs> Um, I, I want to reiterate something you said, which is for me, Rex Harrison was an utter revelation in this movie because I only know 1960s Rex Harrison. I know oh. My Fair Lady, Dr. Doolittle, The Agony and the Ecstasy. And so like, I have a kind of picture in my head of who Rex Harrison is. Mm-hmm. I was struck by how like kind of dashing he is in this movie. I was like, wow, this like, like it's just, it's just, he seems unrelated to that person other than some of the like the the ver- verbal acuity um and uh like you said the physical comedy stuff i didn't i just didn't know i always assume nobody can do that stuff cuz so few people like it just doesn't happen that much but but he was amazing at it and i don't know if that's stage training or what but yeah yeah I mean, you know i mean i i wouldn't necessarily put him in the same class as Cary Grant but Cary Grant is the other actor i think of who combines the verbal facility with the physical comedy and Harrison really pulls it off. And I can't think of other Harrison roles where he does that. Actually, that's the other kind of interesting thing. He, yes, uh, he I wonder what Sturgis saw in him to say like, Oh, I bet yeah. you could do this. Yeah. That's a good, yeah. That's a good question, Sam. Cause I think that he wanted Harrison all along. Uh, I think he wanted other women, but um, uh, he, and Harrison had a wonderful time making this film. He, he, he and Sturgis hit it off and it was a very, a very fond experience for him. Uh, interestingly enough, one of one of the uh, commentators on the on the on the on the commentary track says that when he interviewed Harrison in the eighties and to talk about this film, they they wanted to watch it on VHS, but they couldn't get the VHS player to work. <laughs> just, That's funny. That just seems so appropriate. <laughs> so, so where does this film fit into the Sturgis canon for you? For me, it's uh, it's it's way at the top. Uh, it, it may it, it may actually be number one. Um, I mean, I I love uh, Palm Beach Story is very high for me as well um, as is Sullivan's Travels. But I I just think for all the reasons you and I have been talking about for the last fifty minutes, I just think this film is such a total package um, that I I just think it represents the apex of his of his art. I'm glad to hear that because that was my takeaway. Like I, I was wondering, like, is it okay to think this is maybe better than Sullivan's Travels? And I just yeah. think like this is this movie is doing so much and and it's got ideas. I mean, it, it if it didn't have ideas, it would still be like, wow, he's doing all this stuff. But I feel like it, it's it's playing with interesting ideas. Um, and uh, yeah, that, that was I, I really this is I think this is the my favorite of the three that we've watched uh, from him, and I like all three, but I think this is this is my favorite. Um, do you have anything else you want to talk about with this film? Yeah, just just three quick but unrelated things. Um, one is I want to go back to talking about this as being kind of Sturgis' last great film. At the time that Sturgis made this film, he was the third highest paid man in in America. He was making nine thousand dollars a week. And according to one converter that I looked at, that's $115,000 in today's money. Wow. So multiply that by 52 and you get a big, you get a big number. Um, the film was remade, as you probably know, in 1984 with Dudley Moore. Uh, I've never been able to watch it and I have no intentions of ever watching it. Uh, it was, a, it was also a flop. So, so maybe there's just something, but I just can't imagine Dudley Moore replacing Rex Harrison, for example, it just doesn't work for me. Um, the other thing, the other, oh, two, I'm sorry, I have two two more things. The other one is he gets that famous last line we've already talked about, but 
Her last line is so silly. She says, I know what it's like to be a great man. That is, I don't really. Yes. <laughs> um, the final thing I want to say is that, um, you know, Sturgis is, it, one of the things I also love about Sturgis is he's he, he is a great visual filmmaker. We've already talked about Slapstick, which he carries off very well. But I love the two contrasting tracking shots in this film. There's the tracking shot when he goes into the restaurant and I, mm. it's, it's very Scorsese-like, actually. Obviously, you know, th you think about Goodfellas, um, and, and the way the way he stops off at these little stations, he has a quick brandy, he grabs an hors d'oeuvre, he just he weaves his way so expertly, and he's so uh, he's so at ease and very much the man of the world. And it's like this is kind of Sir Alfred at his best. And then later, you get the tracking shot when he goes down to thirty-four oh six. Uh, down the hallway of the hotel and 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 rather than getting classical music you get the sound of somebody vacuuming uh and, and to me th those contrasts they're both great shots but they also set up the, the fundamental kind of contrast that's going on in in the film so it's another example of how well constructed the film is absolutely i have just one other from the bottom of my notes thing i was looking up linda darnell because i'm like yeah. have i seen her before and we have from my darling clementine i didn't realize that was the same actress mm -hmm. um and then i so that was i think two years before this yeah she has has a big part in that uh well barrett what do you have for us for next week well i'm glad you brought up linda darnell because uh linda darnell uh was uh a striking beauty she made her film debut at the age of 16 um, she has two films that are considered her best films. Uh, this is one of them. The other one is a film she made with uh, Joseph Mankiewicz, and we've previously seen Mankiewicz's All About Eve, uh, called A Letter to Three Wives, which is in the Criterion Linda Darnell collection right now. Um, and I, well, let me say, when, when you watch the film, you will see how there are certain structural similarities to Unfaithful Years. It's one reason I want to watch it. Uh, I want to watch it because it's another good Linda Darnell performance. We really didn't talk at all about how well we didn't talk at all about her performance in Unfaithfully Yours, where she actually has to be kind of a different person in mm -hmm. each scenario based on what uh, Sir Alfred is projecting about her. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I have to tell you, I have to say Sir Alfred is based on Sir Thomas Beecham. His family made their fortune um, producing laxatives. So that's why he's that's why he says that they had kept the nation regular since Waterloo, because if they had said laxatives, uh, Sir Thomas Beecham would have sued. But then, of course, they, by naming him Alfred de Carter, he may be referencing Carter's little liver pills. Um, anyway, uh, back to Joseph Manquist. He's another guy, as you know, famous for his really witty scripts. So I think it'll be an interesting pairing with this film. Oh, fantastic. I'm very, very excited for that. I'm glad you explained that joke because I didn't get it. I yeah. was just like, because he said, yeah, because he, um, August talked about like the questionable way his family made his money. And I was like, I don't, I don't get it, but that's great. That's yeah, everybody knew it was Sir Thomas Beecham, but since he didn't say it, uh, he, he didn't get sued. <laughs> that's fantastic. Well, Bert, thank you so much for recommending this film. I really love this. If you haven't seen this movie, uh, get Criterion Channel and watch this. This is a, it's a delight to watch. Nothing is spoiled by this conversation. Um, it's just a, uh, it's a crazy funny movie and interesting ideas. So thank you so much for recommending this. Thank you for having this conversation. That is all the time that we have, but we will be back next week to talk about a letter to three wives in the video store. Mm -hmm.